Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. You know, I just wrote my manifesto for my time at Yale for Sarah Rule's class. And, like, my whole thing was about nonsense and, like, someone not being able to make sense of my otherness through the meaning-making required in theater, right? Because no one's trying to make sense of whiteness when they watch a Wooster Group show. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, what, whereas if I put a play up where it's just you and I talking into microphones about what we're talking about right now, people will be making sense of it through a racial lens, through a queer lens. And we only do that with other bodies. And I'm saying, like, that's, like, again, it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing that, like, I'm excited to complicate. That was Jeremy O'Harris. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, Happy holidays to you. Usually on this podcast around this time of the year, we do a kind of uh, holiday episode where I call uh, friends and uh, past guests of the podcast, sometimes my parents, and talk to them about what they're thankful for. But we're not going to do that this year. Ultimately, um, that required uh, a whole bunch of work, and uh, right now I'm in between three or four different running projects, and I just didn't quite have the energy to do that. I apologize uh, in advance. If you were looking forward to that, we will do it again next year. That being said, we originally were going to have the wonderful actor Keith David on the show this week. We recorded that episode. It is really, really good, but 
my friend, the very talented Jeremy O'Harris, was in town this past week. His new play called Slave Play is in New York right now. He has another one coming out in 2019 called Daddy. He is uh, one of the smartest, funniest, uh, loudest, and uh, enjoyable people I know to talk to. And uh, I didn't want to pass that up. And quite frankly, if you have been reading the New York Times or the New York Times Magazine or just been on the internet, you probably have seen uh, a piece about him. There's a couple headlines that suggest he is the, in quotes, the queer black savior the theater world needs, the next uh, James Baldwin. Uh, these are all pretty uh, well, uh, wild distinctions in something I know Jeremy is at once uh, baffled by and uh, honored by, as he should be. In case you're unfamiliar with Jeremy or his work, uh, I want to play a bit from this short film he made with the wonderful Jinix Bravo. It's part of the Performer series by GQ and Gucci. Here's a bit from that. I want to leave behind a collection of artifacts of my psyche. A psyche that besides my own uniqueness has never been collected before. So that someone else, the psyche shaped similarly to mine, can see that. Black. Queer. Poor. Expressive. I have to say, regardless of those headlines... I do think Jeremy is a sort of once-in-a-decade kind of talent. And I've known him for a few years uh, when he was, at the time, a sort of roving film critic. And uh, to see the evolution of Jeremy and to see the evolution of his work in the past few years has been a great joy. And there's so much more ahead uh, for him. So I don't usually uh, like to have people on that I know and have known for a while, but uh, sometimes you got to make exceptions. Sometimes your friends are just that goddamn talented. So uh, without further ado, here is Jeremy O'Harris. I want to start with you right now. Your life is much different than it was like even six months ago talking yes. to you. How are you feeling right now? Everyone keeps asking me that. And I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, like there's a lot of things that are happening. And like the constant refrain that I have is like, what, what does that mean? You know what I mean? I think for me, I, I, I don't, I can't speak for them. But for me, I'm wondering years ago when I used to run a site called Movie Mezzanine. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I talked about doing stuff and, and I remember when you got accepted into Yale and how excited you were and I, how I was like, this is incredible. You like were one of not many to get this like program. And, um, so I'm always thinking of that in the back of my head of, of the sort of arc and journey you've had. And so now at, in some degree, by some measure, you're at the end of school Mm -hmm. almost. You have one semester left. Yes. And you've worked really hard to get here. So I guess that's what I mean is how do you feel given all that you've put into this? Like now that you are finally having your shit made. Not finally. You've had it made pretty quick. Yeah. But you've worked hard to get there. I think I feel very excited about 
I've been talking a lot about potentials and just like having the access to different potentials. And what's real, what is crazy to me is how like plenteous the potentials are right now. I feel like there's like a lot of different things I could do. Like I could literally decide that like I might just want to keep having a life in the theater. And like if I did that, if certain things go the way I want them to go, like in the way other people are like, you know, uh, implying they may go, I could just do that. Like I could be like Marsha Norman who like told me, she was like, you never have to write for TV or film if you don't want to, if you actually care about making money in the theater. And she was like, she was like, you just, it's just like these decisions you make. So like I could write a musical soon. Like I could do all these things Mm -hmm. that would completely radically alter like what I thought uh, my life could be or what, what options I thought I had, what potentials like were in front of me, you know, does having all those options feel daunting? No, it actually feels exciting. It's good. Yeah, because I think that when I was here, I had a lot of options, but none of those options led to like um a, a like a sort of like infinite ladder. And now I feel like all these options aren't limiting; they're like limitless, and that's really cool. It's like mm. okay, cool. Like I could spend like three years working on a musical, and that could be really fun. Um, while like you know watching you know the work that me and Janixa did like come out into the world and like finally mature as this thing it wanted to be when we started working on it, and then in like a couple months after that or, or a couple years after that musical out, I could then decide to like direct a movie and do, and like all those things would be waiting for me. Whereas before, it's like the options were like oh you could start out like as like an intern in this thing, right. or you could start out <laughs> as like a music scout in this thing, or like you could work at this place for a second. And so I don't know. I feel it felt like literally three years ago. I didn't see. I could see the ceiling on every option I had, and now I don't see as many ceilings, and that's uh, really cool. Let's backtrack then, because I want to know. Uh, you go to DePaul for a little bit, mm-hmm. and you don't make something about acting. You don't make the cut. Yeah. And in turn, at some point, you decide I'm dropping out, and you move to LA. Is that is that how it goes? Yeah, kind of. It's like I didn't make the cut, and then I transfer. A lot of people who don't make the cut transfer to theater right. arts. But you did still do theater work and performed in people's plays yeah. around the city. Yeah, yeah, I worked at like um, I worked at the Goodman. I worked at Clabber Action. I worked at a lot of like you know the sort of like you know Chicago has the best storefront theaters in the city. And, I mean the world, um, and so I worked in a lot of like loop and off loop theaters, which uh-huh. is really cool. Like while working towards being a poetry major. Uh-huh. So I was like I was like cuz I was like fuck theater arts, I'm going to do poetry, which I did with my best friend Erica. And so we were working towards that. And then I just was like I can't do this anymore and I hate the cold. <laughs> and so and one of my friends had been cast on a pilot, so I was like I'll just come to LA and try to do that. Mm. What made you feel like you couldn't do this anymore? The cold beyond the weather i think it was like the weather and was it the people no it was also the fact that like it was it was like being able to see a ceiling made me really frustrated like i was like i was getting cast a lot in chicago but it was like in the same type of roles and i saw the same four guys at every Uh callback and it was like oh if it's not me it's gonna be this dude and if it's not either of us it's definitely gonna be john michael hill and if john michael hill was getting it it was probably the money job you know what i mean so it was like you know there was one actor who was always gonna get the 
money job, and that's right. why he's literally in widows right now. <laughs> um, and then the rest of us were going to get the like scraps for, and I could see that, and that's how Chicago works. So Chicago is like a meritocracy. It's like, and like oh, like it's about like being a lifer. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, if you last for those ten years where you're getting John Michael right. Hill scraps, then you will be the next John Michael Hill. It rewards those who stays. Yes. Yeah, and I, I was like, mm, I'm not. I don't have time for that. So you're like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go to L.A. Yes. Pretty much on. A whim, yes, a complete whim. Your friend, your friend gets a television show, and you're like, "I'll just, I'll just come." Yeah. What yeah. happens? What do you? What are your earliest memories of being here and, and moving? What year yeah. is that? It's two. I don't. I can't remember years very well. It was like 2011, I believe. Okay. Um, and it was in the. It was February, and the most. Vivid you can't remember years, but you remember months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was cold, and like it was right before this huge blizzard in Chicago. So like, okay. I never forgot that. Um, so I show up here, like literally the, like as I land, like it's like blizzard hits Chicago. And I was like, what the fuck? And, um, I think that LA is the beach. So I get a hostel in, um, hostling international Santa Monica location. Oh Um, God. Yeah. And my computer was messed up. And so I went to the Mac store on third street promenade. And I just sort of was like, I was like, oh my god, like this is so glamorous. Like I thought, like like I had never been to California before. It was like this is so cool. You had never been to California, never, never. Which so, makes your move even more like impressive and, and yeah. scary. No, it's very. It's like sometimes I'll think back on it. It's like it's very like sort of like seventies movie about yeah. like what like how one becomes the thing. It totally is seventies movie. Yeah, it's seventies yeah, movie because it's like those people are like living. Yeah. But I don't know where they're going exactly. Yes. It's like every Robert Altman movie is like oh, God. What, what are their jobs? <laughs> yes. I know you're a detective, but you're doing nothing at all. That was my life for six years. Like that and that's what I that's I think that's probably why I love Robert Altman so much. Um I have to tell you about that at some point. But anyway, um I I so I went to get my computer fixed and there's this guy named Josh Walker there. He was like a really like happy like excitable josh walker yeah he was a very excited uh like genius at the genius bar and he was like yo what are you doing here like you're cool and i was like oh my god like nothing like i just moved here today and he was like what are you doing tonight like do you want to go to a club and i had i had this book i had stolen from the airport that was a wallpaper guide to la Uh and so i like who steals books from an airport me because it, it, like, it was something I did like when I first like started flying to Chicago. Right. And I was like, and it was by accident the first time. Like I was like reading The New Yorker and they were like, final call for this thing. And I was like, oh my God. And I like ran to get my <laughs> plane. And then I got on the flight and I was like, oh, I have this New Yorker. And I was like, okay, cool. Like you can steal a magazine if you just like walk out with it. Yeah, no one will know. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, also they're not going to like chase you down. Yeah. But I was always a, I, since a child, I had been taught very intensely, like do not steal uh-huh. so stealing with anyone all my friends like shoplifted in high school and stuff and i was like you guys are also because they were rich and i was like this is crazy why are you shoplifting your mother forbid it yeah and so i just 100 didn't do it um but then i did get this thing where i was like i will steal from airports so i stole and then I, I stole the wallpaper got to chicago which is how i found out about all these great restaurants in chicago when i was a student um and the and my favorite restaurant was this restaurant called Avec. So when I came to LA, I was like, oh, my thing is going to be I steal wallpaper guides <laughs> for cities and like go to all the cool places. So anyway, I was like, this is going to be your thing? That was, that was, that's what I wanted to be my thing. You know, I, I think I had just read like, I don't know, you, you'll have to do like a timestamp on this, but I think I had probably read Just Kids recently. Okay. Like it was like around that time I read Just Kids. Um, so I think I was like, I'm Patty Smith. 
Um, this is really making a lot more sense. Yeah. I didn't even know this about you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, have, I used to. I take a, I take upon a lot of affects. Yes. I was like, that's gonna be my thing. Um, so you go, so um, go to, to this club, yeah, I assume. Yeah. You know, so Josh is like. Uh, I'm DJing at the Standard West Hollywood, and that was in the Wallpaper Guide. And right. I was like, "Oh, I have to go. Right. I can't." Miss According it. to this book that I just stole, it looks like I have to come. Today. Yeah, it's like it's one of the top places to go. So I like go with him to the Wallpaper Guide. Oh, to the Wallpaper Guide. Um, you know, Michelin starred um, <laughs> Standard West Hollywood, and he DJs. It's a DJ set. You know, we hang out. His girlfriend's there. They're like, where are you staying? I'm like, at the hostel. And Josh is like, absolutely not. Like, you're going to stay with us. Right. So for three weeks, I stayed with them in their apartment in Santa Monica. It was like a fabulous time. They were really sweet. And I found an apartment. I got a job at Barney's, the Barney's co-op at Third uh, Third Street Promenade. Uh Uh-huh. And I started working there. And, like, I was auditioning and stuff and, like, living my dreams. And then... Auditioning, you wanted to act. Yeah, yeah. I was an actor still, you know? But then it was about like a year into working here and like having like, I was making so much money at Barney's. I was doing really, really well. And then I woke up one day and I was just like, oh, I don't want to go to this audition today. Like, I don't want to memorize these sides. I don't want to do this. Like, this is boring. Oh, I don't want to be an actor. And then that was like this thing. I was like, oh, I don't actually like this. Like, I don't like the job of this. Like, I like the act of this. Right. But I don't like the job of this. Like, I don't like... I don't get that same thrill that my other friends get when they're like, I got a call back today. Like, I mean, I didn't get it, but it felt great. And I was like, like, that's lame. (laughs) And then um, I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so. um, How did that feel? It felt freeing because I realized that a part of the reason I was doing it so hardcore in Chicago was because like all my friends were looking at me. Ah. And in Chicago, and this is such a California story, but in Chicago, I had a history. And I woke up that day realizing, like, I had no history or no responsibility to my history in in L.A. Right. So I got to identify as anything I wanted to identify as. So I was like, I am someone who graduated college. I didn't drop out. So I would just tell me I graduated because it was, like, made my life easier. You know, like, because, like, and also, like, had this not a shame. It's not a problem. Yeah, but I had this super shame because I was, like, you know, did really, really well in high school. Like, I was, like, that kid. Mm-hmm. And also, I was a kid whose parents had been, like, or my mom who'd been, like, you're going to go to college. And I was, like, you know, to be that person that dropped out made me feel crazy. So I started identifying like that and started telling people I was a playwright because I'd written a play in college and that did really well. And no one's going to ever ask you to read a play um, because they don't want to. So I got to just be... Send me your play. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, I asked you. You did. I sent you one now. I have one. Six, seven years later, I have a play. A real one. Um, I read one years ago. I read Water Sports, I think. Well, that was like four years ago. Four years ago. That was ago. after I'd already like started yeah. up again. Yeah. But for, there were like two years in 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 so LA the, where I didn't a, really write plays. Right. There's a two year where you're fibbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Ex- I was like kind of writing things. Yeah, yeah. I had ideas. I right. was like, that would be a cool play. Look, you're, that's half the battle. <laughs> No, you were willing to bullshit. Yeah. Which uh, is something people should learn earlier. Yeah. I think yeah. it's fine. Yeah. Uh, so that, and that also complicates the idea from earlier that I'm one of the most honest people you know. Because um, my foundational myth is that I came to LA and lied. How do you reconcile that? <laughs> I think that I told like a sort of like spiritual truth. Yeah. Wow. That is really <laughs> extending the truth. Spiritually, I am being honest. Yeah. Just in reality, I am lying to yeah, you right yeah. now. Energetically, it felt real. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I see. I actually think you should have been an actor then. Because yeah. that's like half the battle. I mean, who knows? He, I mean, he might resurge. He probably will. <laughs> I think that's like still in the cards. Um, so you have this period where you get to bullshit 
and people buy it and are in on it. Are you having a good time? I assume you're having a good time, right? Yeah, I'm having a good time. But also, like, it, I don't know if it was a matter of people buying it. People, like, passively just, like, accept Whatever. It. They people, were just like, whatever. too self-involved. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter. Um, but I was having a good time. I met a girl named Keely who became my best friend. Uh-huh. And she and I, like, got into so much mischief together. And I got to have, like, a, like early 20s that were full of me being, like, a lot of experiences, like my experience with Josh Walker, mm-hmm. where in... I like that you say his full name. I know that's. I mean, that feels violent. I'm like trying to dock someone. Like I'm just like Josh Walker. He now no longer lives in L.A. He lives in no. I'm just um, but I li- I lived here. Didn't sleep very much. Uh, read a bunch. I was obsessed with like reading a bunch of like old plays and obsessed with reading a bunch of like new blacklist screenplays. Mm-hmm. Like the blacklist was like becoming a thing, right, right. and I was obsessed with the blacklist. I was like, "What is this weird thing?" Like, still not actively wanting to be a writer, but always thinking because part of the reason I stopped acting is because I was always like, "I could write better than this. Like, I could imagine a better script than this. Never written one, but I know that like in my brain, I see something better." Right. So um, I would just read things and be like, "How did th-? like okay?" There's a couple screenwriters who I wish I could drag, but I'm not mean and I don't know them. But there, but there were some pl- there were some things that would be like number three on the blacklist, like and like it would be a writer you're who'd be on to, there. You're like, allowed to drag people. No, I just don't. I don't know these people well enough. I'm just starting out. Like yeah, you know, yeah. um, but there were like a bunch of. I mean, I might be on the blacklist, and someone's gonna be like, "Who the fuck is this?" And they're gonna listen <laughs> to this interview. And they're like, "God, this guy's such a dick, and he can't write." Um, but he, uh, but like I would see like these dudes on the list every year who like I was just like, "All these suck." And so that's what I, how I spent my days. And then my nights I spent. So you spent partying. your days reading people's scripts and being like, this sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or a, being like, this life. is so cool. <laughs> like, I remember reading the script for a, for what beca- became a rival uh-huh. and being like, this is cool. Like, if only I could write like this. Because, like, uh-huh. whenever I read something that was like naturalism, I was like, yeah, I could, I'll write that. But whenever it was something like really cool sci fi and not like with a bad twist, I was mm-hmm. like, this is cool. So at any point in this time, are you writing something just to yourself just i I wanted to write this thing called like not another shakespeare revival Uh like i became really good friends with this girl juliet and these like german exchange students that were living with her and i also later lived with juliet and her family and i was like i'm gonna write a play for these like really gorgeous like german boys who like are all actor models it seemed like you uh were bouncing around a lot yeah, I was. Uh, Home-wise, is that yes, right? Yes, I was completely a... Uh, nomad. Yes, yes, I think that's a nice way to put it. Um, yeah, I was a nomad. Um, which I feel like LA has a lot nice of those. Way. Like, you know, like a sort of like homeless Heidi? You yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I was like sort of a homeless Harris. That's for, half the people in Silver Lake. Yeah, yeah, I just was like, there were all these people who like would always be like, oh, you can just stay here for a while, you can stay here for a while, you can stay here for a while. Um, and I always had like really inconsistent jobs, and especially after I quit Barney's, because then I worked at this art gallery that was really dark. And so, um, in like not a real art gallery. Um, what do you mean dark? It was like the person who ran it ended up like leaving his brother's dead body in a car, like to decay when he and his brother tried to rob someone later. Like uh-huh. I didn't know that like robbery was a part of the whole deal. Like I knew that like there were a lot of drugs because like that was like everywhere in LA. Like you can't like you can't walk into a space and not see like five pounds of Molly and like someone like hiding Coke up their ass. Yeah. You know? So I was like, that's normal. You, by the way, I want to, I want to say something because my parents listen to the show and I live in LA and I think you can go out and not see that. But here's the, but, and this is full transparency. You, as long as I've known you and the brief times we've gone out, you traffic and stuff. 
that I'm not like cool enough to traffic. I was gonna, that makes it. Seem, I was like, are you gonna say I'm a drug trafficker? No, I was no, like, like, I no, don't do no, drugs. That's so no, weird. No, <laughs> but you know what I mean. No, like that's, also, also because I feel like gay culture here is like, you, they're just more cool. They're like more out and having a better but time. I don't than know that many. People. I don't know that many drug people. I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't know that many gay people. I know a lot of drug people. I don't know a lot of gay people. Um, you don't know the, a lot of gay people. I mean, I do now. You know, but like. At Back the time, then, but like, I actually have a very diverse clique of friends, like a lot of different like types of friends. Right, you know, so I got my straights, I got my gays, you I got, got your pockets. Yeah, I got, I got, I got a. They, it depends on what neighborhood I'm in. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Now, West Hollywood is like, you know, there's a real, real intersection happening, and I don't know what's going on there. I think that's good. There needs yeah. to be more intersection. Yeah, I, but no, but I, I, I just reject this idea that you uh-oh. don't go to these parties because like every party I ever went to, even like the the chill ones, people will be like, "There's this, there's that, yeah, there's this." Know. It's everywhere. It yeah, I, I feel like ketamine now runs LA. Like I came back and like before it was like everyone was doing coke, and I guess that got bad. Uh-huh. So like everyone does ketamine. I've not done that. Yeah, it's like no Molly, no coke. It's all ketamine. I haven't done Molly either. You've never done Molly. I, you know, I've been I holding out on that Molly. one. I think I've been holding out on it. Wow, I that's th- like that's the millennial drug. I know. I'm sorry. I I don't smoke cigarettes, but I mean. Oh, you're winking at me now. You're winking at me now because you don't want your parents to know. No, 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 no. They know about all the drug use. (laughs) We're very transparent about it. No, I'm going to, I'm holding out on Molly. I'm waiting. Yeah. Same thing with acid. I haven't done that. Oh, that's crazy. So I've done. I had the worst acid trip ever for everyone else around me, but Uh the best one for myself when I was 18 years old. Oh, wait. I think you said something about this somewhere. Yeah. I talk about it with people all the time, how like. It was like this weird experience where like I came out of it like that was amazing. Okay, what and happened? I, I was just like 18. I had like stayed up. I, I have a lot of problems sleeping. So I like stayed up for a really, really long time. Oh, man, this is no surprise to me. Yeah, I know. It's like my brain is like, go, 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 go. Um, but my, my roommate at the time was this guy Colin and another guy named Max. And Max was a dick. Um and he wasn't very nice to me. Um, and so, but they would, and like, and we both kind of were like in love with Colin. You know, like in that like undergraduate way where like three men are all friends and like the, both of them were straight, but mm-hmm. it was like we, it was like very home at the end of the world where like. Were I, they really straight though? Yeah, they were. They were really okay. straight, I think. I mean, yeah. I mean, Colin's a Republican now, so who knows? Um, I mean, I don't know if he actually is a Republican. I think someone told me that he was, and I was yeah. like, I buy it. No, he's definitely gay. Then. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, I don't think Colin was gay. But um, me, me, Colin, and Max were very. We were we were all roommates, but like Max didn't really like me. I didn't really like Max. Colin liked both of us, and he like got different intimacies from both of us. Uh-huh. But like we both fought over his attention. So like the space. <laughs> so I was like a I was a teetotaler in college. So like I was like I don't drink, I don't smoke. Like I'm good. Um, and like Colin, like made me his project. So like he like gave me weed for the first time, like at the end of first semester, uh-huh. and like all these other things. It was just like you know I drank with him. I did all this stuff. Like I learned how to be because he was like he was he was that kid who came to undergrad with like a DUI and like uh, had to get regular drug testing. You know? right. Um, so he'd be like, Jeremy, can I get your pee? And it was just like that was like how we became right, friends. You right. know, um, the first the classic friendship. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and. And uh, Max was like a huge drug addict, um, and like, or not drug addict, but he was just druggy um, in that way that like eighteen year olds from who are wealthy from the suburbs of Michigan are. 
and bored um, with money. Yeah, bored with money. Yeah. So um, they they would do drugs, and that was where their friendship really connected. And me and me and Colin would connect over movies. Anyway, in the school year, they were like, "We're going to do Acid tomorrow." And he was like, "Jeremy," and they had done it multiple times throughout the year. He's like, "Jeremy, you need to do Acid with us." Like, you like Paul Thomas Anderson movies? You like you know you like um. Anyway, he's like, "You can't." And like Max is like, "He can't do it with us. He can't take it." And I was like, I can. And they was like, no. Anyway, don't sleep all day, all night, because I'm so excited about doing acid the next day. Oh, no. Um, yeah, I just couldn't sleep. And so I stayed up reading. And then I show up to do the acid with everyone, and Max is so pissed. And then I take the acid, and I immediately think that, like, every person there is my dad. And I'm, like, freaking out. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, crying. I'm having, like, catharsis. At one point, they're like, you need to go to bed. And instead of sleeping, I just, like, dive in and out of the pool um, which is just the bed. I just like keep oh, jumping on the you bed. You think the bed is the pool? Yeah. Um, I like pulled out a knife at one point, but I didn't like hurt anyone. I just was like, aren't knives really cool? And I told this whole story about knives. Um, anyway, it was a beautiful experience for me. On the inside of it, it right. felt like ev- no terror. No so nothing. there's just like no sense of reality here in this in this journey. In my journey, well, you because well, you're like you have a whole knife narrative. Yeah, and yeah. Like a it was pool. a lot of things are happening. They don't know what's happening, yeah. but they're also hot acid. Yeah. So I wonder what they're processing. I don't know, but it, whatever it was, they all were like, "Jeremy, you were unwell. You can never do acid again." <laughs> um, but I really liked that journey. It was really lovely. Can I ask you something um, personal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this has all been personal. I love, a but personal it's but it's something I actually don't know about you. I know. That uh, your parents split up at 11, mm-hmm. which is a strange age for your parents to split up. Mine split up before I was one, and then again at 14, and then again at 19. Mm-hmm. But at 11, 11 to 14 is a weird age. And so you're primarily raised, or at least in those teen years, by your mom. Yeah. Who is seems to be a very big part of your life. The stuff with your father, what are you working through on that trip? Mm, nothing. Nothing. I I mean so much, but all of it is like that. I mean that is the one thing I never. I'm just like I don't even want to give him like breath. Why is that? He's not worth it. Is that the feeling? Oh yeah, not worth it. I think that like you know, my mom is the only parental figure that's like worth my breath. Mm. Yeah. How was Biological it? parental figure. What What was her upbringing like with you in your teen years? I mean, I think my mom has always seen me as sort of like a weird little alien that she had <laughs> at 19. She's just like, I don't know how I had this person. Um, Is that true? Yeah. I mean, we get along really, we get along really well. And in some ways, like we like sort of like parent each other, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you might've had this as one oh, of your parents I'm as well. I'm very familiar with this. And like, you know, being like, hyper articulate and like perceptive and just close you know we like were deeply codependent mm-hmm. made our relationship really complicated but really deep yeah you know it made for me it's um it was very complicated in high school and then once college came and i left we had to like re- we had to like figure it out again how did you figure it out in college well i just think it changes once you're not there all the time yeah. Like when you're literally like their bodies are not there. So there's just not as much engagement. And so that closeness, both like geographically, but also just person to person, it just changes yeah. or it kind of has to change. Cause I remember when I'd come back home from like, you know, Christmas break or something like that, 
that it would feel funny. It yeah. was because it was not. It was no longer the same. Yeah. And in fact, it was good that it wasn't the same because it was codependent. Yeah. And Do you feel a necessary separation? I felt that. Yeah. I think she did too. But I, I also think she regretted it. Not regretted it. She felt strange about it because she felt the fact that we even needed to have a separation was some sort of failure on her part. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where you stand with your mom, but th- that's been tricky. My mom and I are so close, but I think that, like, especially me coming to a space where I'm, like, getting really independent and being, like, I can't talk to you on the phone every day or even right. every other day. Which is, yeah, has is, to happen. Yeah, it's, like, very difficult. And it's something we're navigating. Yeah. Actively. So you're figuring it out right now. Mm-hmm. What about when you're in L.A. in those years? You're here for three or four years at that point, far away from her. Is she in Virginia still at that point? Yeah. What is your relationship like? We talk a lot, and she's also helping me a lot, you know? And I think that, like, one of the spaces where I have regret is that, like, I didn't bridge, like, me being a dependent and to me being independent as well as I could have because I went to grad school, right? And in grad school, I still was, like, I've still been dependent, but, like, the institution came in as a sort of, like, figure Mm -hmm. to, like, I mean, like, I talk a lot about how, like, my next play daddy is about like, it's not about like, I think like the lazy assumption is that it's about the like one-to-one like thing that's happening on stage, but it's like people don't think about metaphors and, um, (laughs) and how like for me, the play is actually about like who, like in what spaces does like patronage become like a daddy figure and like, you know, and who gets to be your daddy when and how, you know, and who does need a daddy, who doesn't need a daddy. And as someone who like grew up like, like outside of like the normative normative means of someone who goes to a school like Yale, like um, having a daddy like Yale School of Drama, which is, which is literally paying me to go to school, has mm-hmm. been like unlike any other sort of like daddy baby relationship I've ever been in. You know, but you've had prior, yeah, like they just like yeah, then like you know, n- not even my mother because it has ever been able to like provide for me that way. You know, mm-hmm. um, and it's been really wonderful. You know. But it's also had its downsides, you know what I mean? Like, which is why I think I have that. I mean, I think to go back to your earlier question, like, that's always the thing that I have with that. Is that, like, um, in, like, a patriarchal society, like, I think that there are, like, as many, like, drawbacks to having a daddy as there are, like, benefits, you know? Uh. And one of those drawbacks is, like, dealing with the structures that, like, daddy puts in place in order to support you. Mm. I see. I think I'm better understanding where you're coming from. Yeah. Because it's the first time knowing you that we arrived at a subject that you were a little upset by. Yeah. And I feel bad. No, don't feel bad. Well, I've, I feel like I, I don't, um, that it's something that sticks with you. I mean, I guess how could it not? Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. My mom felt, felt like this weird thing about it the other day that I was like, mom, I don't feel this way. Like it's totally fine. And she's like, no, I feel it deeply. Like, um, she was like, I just feel like, you know, I remember you being like uh, five. Because like, it's like the, cause the, the, the getting a divorce thing is like not how, like there was a lot of distance in, in and out of there, right? And like when I was five, there was like a moment when like I was like, why is my dad the only dad that's not here? Like blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. she was like, you felt so bad about that. I was like, yeah, but like, mom, like that wasn't your fault. Like that wasn't like you doing something wrong. That's like a societal structure that was like unable to like 
recognize the fact that like I that like my teacher shouldn't have made me feel like I needed that structure uh-huh. there in order for us to be like normal or for me to be happy. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Uh, at a certain point, I think you find some footing in the city mm-hmm. right towards the end of your stay. Also, at some point, you're doing film criticism in some capacity. Yeah. What is the timeline of all that? So you're here for six years. You're at Barney's for some of that. You float and do other gigs and bits for a couple more years. Yeah, I like. there's a moment of like a year and a half of me just going on tour with Florence and the Machine, which is becoming more and more of like a thing where people are just like, what? And I'm like, I know, I can't explain it. But it was like a thing that happened. Um, And then... You know, a friend I met along the way was this guy, Sam Levinson, who is amazing. And at one point he started dating and then he married a woman named Ashley Levinson. And Ashley had helped create an app called Rex, which is like a recommendation app. It was like mm-hmm. really cool. And a lot of people on this app like really liked me. Like I was like one of the youngest people on the app and I was like a black person. And it was like I was a very like in a queer person. And I think I hit a lot of like markers that like for that small period of like influencers who were like on this beta of the app it was like 20 of us like a lot of people were really excited and a lot of them were like really high up people and so it was like i was like a random person on this weird app Mm -hmm. and then um so ashley because i was already close with the family was like oh you should come to our house because we're running a house for sundance because they really wanted it to be like a app to like to integrate into like the film film world in some way i got it and um, so that was when I went to my first Sundance. It was, like, really, really cool. Um, I really loved it. And I am, as you know, because we met there, too. That year? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, oh, great. I'm, like, a, I'm, oh, no, that was, I think we met the second year when I was actually criti- doing criticism. Okay. But um, but I was, like, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not shy about my opinions. Uh-huh. So I was, like, going to parties and, like, you know, I, I had this, like, special pass or whatever so i'd seen all these movies and i was like oh my god this is amazing like because i just love movies i love talking about movies i love everything about movies and um i went to this party at the indie wire house and i was just like you know holding court and being like i hated this i love this this mm-hmm. is why i like this yes and this is blah, blah, blah. and this one guy um benjamin umstead was like oh you are cool like you should write for our like my website and i was like what he's like you should write for us like i like your opinions and i was like no i'm not a not a reviewer he's like just do it and so then i um took his card and then i decided that i was like oh this will be a good way to see movies before other people like it was like i loved being able to see movies before everyone else and right. be like i know you've heard the blog say that x is great but it's not so good <laughs> you know and so it was like it was like really empowering it's about access yeah yeah yeah. so i was just like okay cool i can get a free ticket to south by down yeah and so i i wrote about um babysitter at south by that was my first thing. And then I wrote about something else. And then I just kept doing it. It was just like, became fun. I went to LA Film Festival. Then I went to Sundance again. And then. Um, That's where we met. Yeah. We met at that Should Sundance. we go through it? Yeah. I Well, so I remember us sitting at a table together. It was like me, you, Hunter Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, who else was in that clique? Wow. It was like a Gosh. clique of people. Okay. But I remember I knew about you because uh, Kyle Buchanan, now the carpetbagger, was like, there's this kid, San Fragoso, who's like, 20 he said you were 24 then but i think you're 24 now i am 24. yeah but he thought you were like even younger than you are i must have been like 20 then yeah yeah. and so it was like a whole thing and he was like yeah like because you were you were writing for vogue already i think so yeah so like you were you were making some people like chat about you Uh, ah see i you know the thing is you're not aware of this yeah and then we met at the uh manchester by the sea screening Uh uh-huh yeah 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 and i 
uh, you had just written about a movie that I thought was really great. What's the movie, Jeremy? It was called Morris from America. Yeah, you should say it again because no one remembers that movie. That's such a dick move. Um, Morris from America, written by a friend of mine now, who I think is very kind and sweet, um, in a movie that Franklin Leonard also said was a, a deeply compelling. Yes, and look. it and it and it harkened back to both of your childhoods. Yes, which I don't want to diminish. <laughs> and now that he's your friend, I can't say anything. You can no, because he's gonna maybe listen to this. He won't I... listen to it. Okay, good. how many people listen to this? <laughs> Enough people. More, more than people that saw more from America. Well, I don't know less. those numbers. <laughs> you know those numbers. That was on like uh, it was on um, who put it out? AT and T put it out or something? No. Who was was it? <laughs> they did not distribute them. <laughs> That's so. You're such a dick. Whatever, Chad's amazing. No, look, I think he's talented. He made the the, the this uh, this is Martin Bonner, right? Did he make that movie? Martin yes, Bonner? I thought that was a good movie. Yes. Anyway, I didn't like this movie. What's the big deal? But it wasn't that you you're didn't not like it. The it was, story no, well, I forgot Jeremy. what it. I don't. I don't. Okay, I can't remember the story. All I remember is that you liked this movie. I thought your review was. Ra- you didn't like this movie. You thought I thought your review was racist. And yes. I was like, this is not okay. This is great. Okay, yeah. so now, I'm gonna now. I'm gonna so then I wrote a counter review. Oh, you're missing. Okay, your, okay. Let's backtrack. Rewind. Here's what actually happened. Okay. <laughs> We're at a screening for Manchester by the Sea. You and I have not met each other. Never. I no, not ever. You say something. You come up to me, a sort of uh, an accost, and you say, "Are you Sam Fragoso?" <laughs> and I say, "Yes." Who are you? And you, we shake hands, and you say, "I'm Jeremy," and I read your review for Morse for America, and uh, I really have a lot of things to say to you. And I said, "Oh, okay. Well, great. Well, let's talk about it after." And so the movie begins. We watch Manchester by the Sea. Afterward, in the cold, we talk for like 20 minutes while you like yell at me. <laughs> I ab- yell about how like <laughs> racist uh, my review is. No, you don't yell. You 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 diplomatically talk. To me. Um, I reread the review. You want to pull quotes? The review is bad, though. You think it's a bad review? I think it's a bad review. I think I don't like that movie, but I think what I wrote was not good. See, and this is something I feel so deeply. I have such a passion about criticism. Yeah, and I I feel that I wish more critics in New York, especially who write for the Times, would just say. Like I didn't like it, and I think that I got mean in that review for yeah. no reason. I think I got mean in that review for a reason that I believed in then that I I no longer believe in now. I think, but I think like conviction wanes. That's just what happens. Yeah. Oh, anyway, the point of the story is that I remember just being so enticed by you because I was like, "Wow, who is this guy that's just like coming up to me?" And we and became like sort of fast like buddies. At we the did. Festival. We did. I even though I think. I mean, I don't know how you felt about me at that time, but no, it, I didn't it, dislike you. Okay, yeah, because we went out to dinner. Did we? Yes, we did. We had like a like a hang with like it was me, you. I remember Hunter Harris Hunter was there Harris. because like she doesn't. I follow her. She wrote about but the she, movie. But she, that was like before she became like a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remembered her, and it was like two other critics that were like young and like POCs. Yeah, and we and they were like there with like the, the Ebert thing. I think. Oh yeah, right. I, yeah, yes, yeah. I was there for that. And um, Chaz always brought me to those. I was, I was like, um, yeah. Here's what also I remember is that you were uh, taken aback by the fact that I wasn't gay. Oh yeah, I thought you were gay. Right. You had a real strong gay energy. Really? What was that about? I don't know. 
I think it was also that I maybe was attracted to you like for a quarter of a second. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Well, no, uh, it went, went it passed. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I'm a Gemini. It's not personal. It's just like it comes and it goes. And I'll be like, oh, that person's hot. And I'm like, no, they aren't. I'm over it. Okay. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. like, not for me. <laughs> like, it like happens and it doesn't. I see. Yeah. But also, you have a gayish energy. Right. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Oh, I, no. And I think at the time, you kind of were identifying as like queer. I never said that. You didn't, but you didn't identify as straight. I think I probably said that I was like, unclear yeah yeah yeah. but i didn't i i had not been with the guy then yeah i, I mean i have it now <laughs> but i still mom I, dad no 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 i i leave it you have to, i think you have to leave the door open on, yeah. on that stuff um but i like that you felt that way i thought it was really funny um when do you fall out of criticism um uh after i get hit by a car this is on the way back from that trip yeah from Sundance. Right. We were driving back from Sundance. I remember this. I had already applied to grad school, too. I had applied to grad school because I went to McDowell. That was, that was the thing that happened in between mm-hmm. South by LA Film Festival. And so I applied to McDowell. Then I went to the McDowell Colony. It was really great. Then I came back to LA. And then I applied to grad school because, like, at the McDowell Colony, I decided, like, I'm going to take my life seriously as a playwright. Mm-hmm. Is that and, where you wrote Daddy? Yeah. So I wrote Daddy there. And I sent, when I applied to grad school, I was like, I'm not getting in. So there are like three theaters that have, or there, there's a lot of theaters that have programs. So the three theaters I liked a lot. Because I was like, I was also very much, very specific about like, I'm only going to apply to places that I actually believe in and who I think would believe in me. So I sent a play to Player at Horizons because um, you can do a blind submission there. And they, they like really tout that they read all their blind submissions. And then um, I applied for the 2050 Fellowship at New York Theater Workshop. And then I sent a play to the Royal Court in London. And um, a year later, I had a commission at Players Horizons. And I almost got into the 2050 Fellowship, but I got into Yale first. And so then they invited me to, like, keep an – I sent them, like, a frantic email, like, guys, I'm so sorry. Like, I know you guys were going to let me into 2050 Fellowship, but, like, I have to, like, take myself out of contention. But, like, I don't want to lose my relationship with you guys. Like, I don't know what to do. And they were like, shut up. Like, just, like, keep emailing us. And so I kept a relationship with them. I, I, like, I would email them, like, half draft of plays. Just so I'm like, hey, don't forget about me. Like, I know I'm not in your fellowship. Um, and that now they're doing my first play, which is really crazy. Did you feel like you were making strides in the direction you wanted to go? When I was when I applied, yeah, when you're applying and you're writing more, and it, yeah, it seems I was like, like you're I just written, footing. yeah, I just written, I just written something at McDowell, and that took a month of me not writing there for me to figure it out. But then I was like, I got it, like, bam, and like I came back and everyone was really impressed with this play, and I was like, I can do this, I really can do this, and so oh, I, I, so I felt like I could do anything. Like I decided to make a short film called Tristan, Their Kind. Starring um, Antonio Marziali, who is mm. just in a Netflix film, oh. and Nico Tortorella, and uh, I haven't seen the, this movie. The now Instagram and Twitter actress and celebrity Freckle. Ah, yes. Yes, and Boy Child was in it. Um, who is a lot of people? Yeah, it was like Wu Sang's partner, who just won the MacArthur Genius Grant, and they make art together. So it was like a very starry. Click before people. it all happened. Yeah, before it all happened. Look at like, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, but then that movie fell apart because we were making it, and we had like this. We had like hired this DP and all this other stuff, and like we had like raised like five grand, and it was supposed to be ten, and someone was going to give us the other five, and like we had paid for all this stuff, so it was going to cost ten, and then um, it was going to be like a four day shoot, and 
Then boy, this got big quick. Yeah, and then five thousand dollars disappeared, like literally three days before we were supposed to start shooting, because someone was like, "Sorry, can't do it now." And we were like, "Wait, what?" Oh. And yeah, and so then the movie had to become a sizzle reel for like the thing we were gonna make. Oh, and then once we, and when we were shooting it, I was just like, "I hate the shot. I hate the shot. This is bad. I don't want to have my name on it. I'm never gonna make this." And so I just hid it away. So there's all this like shot footage, but I just know it's bad. So I'm not gonna ever edit it together. Oh, so you just have it. Mm-hmm. So when I said I haven't seen it, you're like, "Well, yeah, of course." Yeah, it's bad. It was just one of those things where I was like, why would it, like, I would never put this online. I would never want people to see my friends this way. I wouldn't want people to see me this way. And it's, like, not the words I wrote, so we're not going to do it. Thanks, guys. Bye. So that was it? That was it. So was that also, There like- is some lost film that's on another hard drive. Well, that's on two or three different hard drives somewhere, uh-huh. where if anyone ever wants to embarrass me, they can just pull that out. There's also the the web series I made with my best friend that people can also find too, but whatever. Mm. Uh, how did you feel getting into Yale? Um, I got into Brooklyn College first, and I was so ecstatic. I was just like, I got into Brooklyn College. This is fucking amazing. Like, this is where some of the most exciting and like dynamic playwrights of my generation and like the last couple generations have come from. And then like two hours later, I got into Yale. Oh, and, I, and well, I told my mom, and I was like, oh, that's cool, honey. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, she's like you're going to grad school. I was like, yeah, but it's Brooklyn College. She's like, oh, it's, that, so that's good. I was like, yeah. She's like, yay. She didn't, she didn't care. Um, and then I got into Yale, and the first thing I said to the woman who told me I got into Yale was, but I just got into Brooklyn. She was like, what? I was like, I just got into Brooklyn. She's like, you have to make your decision today. And I was like, what? That seems crazy. She's like, this is Yale. It's Yale. And I was like, okay. Yeah, you can't be well, like. Well, I was like, can I can I call you back? And she's like, yeah, but you have to make your decision today. I was like, okay, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming to Yale. She's like, okay, great, great, okay, cool. And okay. she's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> Leave me like you just got the best call that people. Like, yeah. Are and so dying then I was for. like, and so I was just kind of stunned. And then I called my mom, and my mom started screaming, and oh. I started screaming, and then I started crying, and then that was when it felt like right. a thing because my mom was excited about that. So yeah, so I went to Yale because my mom was excited about it, and because they were paying me, I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been able to like you know on the very practical front, like I wouldn't have written the plays I've written if I had went to Brooklyn. Mm. I went to Yale, and even though I have a lot of criticisms of that space and a lot of questions about that world, I did get afforded three years of like stipended writing, right? Which was like incomparable. Is uh, the college? what you thought it was going to be? Not at all. And that was really disappointing. The things that surpassed my what I thought it was going to be were the people. The people were amazing. Mm-hmm. People are amazing. The students. It's like my classmates are everything. Talented. They're so talented. And like I want to work with so many of them for so long. Right. Like my, but that's I think that's why you go to those kind of things. Yeah, which is what everyone told me. But I think... I imagine that, like, you know, you know, I was sitting, you know, like I said, like, I used to spend my days reading plays and screenplays. And, like, I thought I was going to go someplace where someone was going to teach me something I felt bereft of, which was, like, the, like terminology. Right. And, like, something, something you couldn't learn in a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that I couldn't learn by just, like, by being an autodidact and just, like, reading the 
the things because like I also hated like screenwriting books that were like like saved a cat. I was like, this is stupid. Yeah, like that's bad. not how you write. And like you know, those are tough. Yeah, and like, but everyone reads them because they're like, maybe this will be the way. And um, and I think I just wanted to be in a really rigorous environment where like we they're like we're gonna read every single play from like the Greeks to now five times. Like that's what I imagine Yale was, and like that's just not what it is, you know. What and, was it? Mm, it was a lot of self-directed. Um, it's very self-directed, which I think can be a positive. But I think the d- issue with self-direction when there are three students in each year is that like you're all self-directing in different directions, uh, and so there's very little like correlation and like everyone building together sometimes overlap. Yeah, and then. Um, you know, I think we were in a transition time. Like the head of our program left right right when we got in. And so then we had an interim head who's amazing, but she knew she was only going to be there for a year, so she couldn't make any huge changes. And then my second year, Terrell took over, and Terrell um, wanted to make a lot of changes that, like, changed the way the school functioned in my imagination, which, like, um, also were happening halfway through the program that was, like, situated around this other woman's imagination of how the program should work. Uh, so there was, like... It's complicated. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I've, I feel like our year especially got really trapped inside of this, like, very liminal space. Whereas, like, the third years, um, like, in their interim year, the second year, they basically got what they were supposed to be getting from the old head of the program. And then in their third year, it was, like, when Terrell came, it was, like, they got to just basically be on, like, a path to leaving, even if they, like, didn't love everything, you know? So it was just complicated, I think. It's, like, the main thing. It's, like, really complicated. And I think it's complicated to go to an institution in transition. You know, the sort of the identity of the school is changing a lot, too. Like the school, like, like, our class was, like, the most diverse class they've ever had, and we were preceded by the most diverse class we've ever had, and, like, the people after us are the most. It's just like every like so each year they're getting more and more diverse and like changing it and like they're like <laughs> here we have our first like the, you know uh, disabled student we have like our, our first like you know students who do this we have our first students who do that and it's like that is like the all consuming like um, language of the institution uh-huh. but like um, all of the structures and like methodologies of like pedagogy are also based around like a system that is made for white men to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so the school doesn't really understand a lot of models. Like, you know, there's one student of color this year who um, is from a very marginalized group and is an actor. And um, there was, like, nervousness around the fact that, like, they had gotten cast in, like, a big role, like, in a show that, like, where they would be the lead. And it's, like, a lead wherein they wouldn't be doing the things that people from their marginalized group mm. generally get to do. And they were like, oh, I don't know if I can tell the school because like, I think they're going to say no. And I was like, listen, it is insane that there would be any pushback whatsoever upon you doing this because of the pedagogy of the school if if we are talking about actually being social justice, like having a social justice mission to what we're doing. Mm. Because like the realities of the world are, is that for every white person in this institution, they can stay here. Like for every white cis person, they can stay here and not take the big lead role in like big the musical on Broadway, right? <laughs> like they don't need that because there will be 17,000 other roles for them like that. So but the realities for you is that like, this is one of the few roles where you might not, 
have to like play someone who like murders someone, or one of the few roles where you might have, have to play someone who's like, you know, uh, dying. You know, it's like whatever the, the whatever the sort of like very limited pocket of expression we allow for people of that marginalized group to have. Like this is one role where they were gonna be, where they were gonna be able to exist outside of that mm. in a major way. And I was like, that should be their one priority, you know. Um, but the school still is learning how to do that, you know. Because they haven't created spaces. Have like, they figured out how to handle your own work? I think they're figuring it out. Because I feel like your work exists outside the normal parameters of what people expect and want from people of color. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was, why, that, that was where a lot of tension came in my second year. And where I started to feel really alienated at school was in... Some of those moments wherein I was like, I felt like my work was crashing against like perceived notions and my work and my, um, the affect around like me as a young artist, like the affect that I feel I have to present with an affect that I'd like inherited from people I love, like my really good friend Janixa or, um, like, you know, just like even watching like interviews over the years with Spike Lee and like, you know, and I'm just thinking in like a filmic sense, but even like thinking about the ways in which Adrian Kennedy writes about her work or the way Susan Lee Parks talks about her work or Robert O'Hara or um, George C. Wolfe. Like I, I definitely took on a protective affect in order to move through the space. And I think that there was, there were times in both the work I was doing and the affect through which I was presenting were challenging to uh-huh. people because I think that made people think, like it, it 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 made people uncomfortable for a lot of different reasons. I think uh-huh. not not across the board, but a lot of them. Did you enjoy making them uncomfortable? No, um, I think people thought I did. You know, because <laughs> I think people think that I'm much more interested in being like a provocateur or a lone wolf than I am. I genuinely just I'm, I'm like I'm someone who's like much more interested in like figuring it out on my own and asking you for help instead of someone dictating to me how it should be done because like that's how I learn. Mm-hmm. Like I learn best when I'm when I'm the like person um who like is breaking the toy to figure it. Does it make sense? Like yeah. when I'm putting the clock together myself or breaking the thing down. And I think that for people who um whose pedagogy is it, they feel is related to like instructing um, that's like a challenging figure to have someone be like, no, thank you. Like, I don't think that's right. But, um, cause like I've, I took it apart and I know that like that part doesn't actually make the clock go faster. So thanks though. Um, yeah. I was thinking, what were the feedback sessions like? I mean, I think it's really hard because I think that, you know, all of my teachers are like, are people who have like denser knowledge and like, uh, more, um, a longer history of like watching theater than like I do. I can say that for a fact, but I do think that like, but that's always true. They're teachers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're there. Yeah, yeah. But I do think one of the things that made it very difficult for me was the fact that like, I think I have more intersecting tastes than a lot of my teachers do. Mm-hmm. Um, and intersecting interests that like, or at least I, I articulate those intersecting interests more often right. in like my own understanding of how work should function or how work can function. And generally I would feel uh, as though like um, the responses to my work would would be like would limit it to like a realm of like established theatrical praxis, mm-hmm. and I was like, no, I get that, but like this is like you know a reference to like this like um, this painting I love, or this is a reference to like 
this like just like literally like the music right like even just the music is something that i'm like this is a reference that might be beyond you right because of your lived experience so, so you were, you you felt that you had a lot of people around you that didn't have the same data points as yes you did. yes and that in talking about it they couldn't sufficiently engage with the work that you're producing yeah and uh, then their my inability to engage with their and their engagement made them angry some of them like not how? like not happy with me well, they were just yelling at you there was one person who did okay but, so. but doesn't that mean you're doing something right i think so now i think at the time it made me feel really bad you know because like i like to be liked i don't like to not be liked and that mm. was a really difficult moment for me also because it was a really sensitive play you know and i think that you know that's a place where one place i know where i'm radically honest is when i write and I think that um, radical honesty in a sort of like artistic place is not normal for a lot of people. Like I think that like something I'm learning now is that like it doesn't hurt everyone to write every time they write. You know what I mean? Because I was just like, oh yeah, like when you write, like it's just like you like put all your demons on the page and it's just like you're figuring it out and like, you know, you're working with stuff out inside of this world. And they were like, oh, really? No, that's not how it works for me. I just like write a script. Right. Like, oh, you know, I was like, oh, cool. Some people write stuff and it's a rival. And yeah. it's like, oh, I don't know about that world. It has nothing to do with me. These characters aren't replicas. Yeah. yeah, of, yeah. Or like different uh, fractions of yourself. Yeah. Some people truly write fiction. Yeah. Which is just really cool. I don't know how to do that yet. It's I, like a skill I'm working towards. I don't know how. Um, and I think that when it, when someone's telling you that like, something that is like a necessary part of your psyche in your mind like just doesn't work and like they can't see it it's like uh-huh. they don't see you right um it's like they are rejecting you right and so that became really difficult but then you know it came out and the students really liked it a lot of people really saw it and that was really cool it seems like to get to the place we're at now 2018 like it's december you have this play slave play happening you have daddy and it's in the next few months. There has been a pretty wide acceptance. And I'll say as someone who's been watching it from afar, it's been incredible, I think, to see how quickly it's happened. Like yeah. it, it felt like on a dime, like that piece in the New York Times and the piece in GQ and the short you and Janixa made. That that is like where my first question comes from. Now that we've talked for an hour, yeah, of like how do you feel? And when I asked you that originally, I didn't know everything you'd gone through because mm-hmm. we, we don't know each other that well. Yeah, but now, like you have the affirmation. Mm-hmm. Does it mean anything to you? I think it. I mean, I felt it the most at um, at the opening night party, where I think that. You know, I literally had a teacher tell people that, like, this play was going to ruin my career and, like, not be, um, mm-hmm. like, accepted or acceptable. It's just, like, not okay. And I was... But um, fuck that person. Yeah. No. I'm allowed real. to say that. I don't know yeah. this woman. No. Um, oh, you know their gender? <laughs> okay. Maybe I do maybe know this woman. <laughs> Um, this is why I don't have friends on. <laughs> God, the details come through. Um, no, but uh, I'll put it this way: I'll put it out so that we're radically honest, which is yeah. what this thing is supposed to be. I don't remember her name. I know her race. Yeah, yeah. I know the stories. You know the story. You've heard the stories. I've heard the stories from other friends. Yeah, that was really hard for me. It wasn't fun, and 
while it's not like fuck that person because I don't know what that person was going through at that time, I don't know why they did that. I definitely think that there were, I de- for me, it definitely felt racialized. It definitely felt like a thing that was inspired more so by like those like generational cracks that start to happen between like emerging writers and like writers that are at that space just outside mm-hmm. of them. And also that really awkward things that happens when like someone sees a person that's been inspired by them doing the work inside of the field and being like, either this looks too much like my thing or this doesn't look enough like my thing right. or this looks like nothing like my thing. So I don't know how you're like claiming to be one of my children. Like, I don't know if any of those things had to do with it, but that made it really difficult for me at the time. Um, God, I wasn't going to talk about this. I, I've made a rule of not talking about this in any interview, really. Um, I've talked around it. Anyway, um, but so I felt very affirmed knowing that like not only was my career not ruined, but like my career got like a huge boost, boost from from this play happening. You know, and while there are, I mean, and like, again, I never wrote this play because I thought it was going to be like every single person was going to go and be like, I love this. I mean, I like too many Lars von Trier movies to like think that that was going to be like the response. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I like Catherine Brie. Like you don't watch like Mosser and like leave that and have everyone in the theater be like, I get it. I like it because I get it. You know what I mean? And I didn't want to end. The, the, by the way, for for reference, yeah. the play before it begins, you write for Maxwell Neely Cohen on the occasion of his thirtieth birthday. The only person who will love this play. Yeah, which wasn't true. I guess a lot of people love it. Definitely not true. But yeah, I think it's a good insight into where your head was at. Yeah, when I wrote it, I, I mean, I also wrote a play thinking it was going to be like the play that would be like, like the star making play, and that was my play, Daddy. I was like, I'm going to write a play called Daddy. It's going to be there's going to be a pool on stage. It's a spectacle, spectacle, spectacle. It's going to be huge. Yes. It's going to be a, it's going to be money. You know, Alan Cummings going to be there. Yes, Alan Cummings going to be in it. He's going to be in a speedo. It's going to be great. Um, and then no one wanted to do it. They kept being like, Oh, this is great. Where's your next play? You know what I mean? And it like <laughs> We love this. Can we see something else? Yeah. And like it ended up and it ended up being something that I thought was I was gonna relegate as like a a key. Like it was the key that got me into Yale. It was the key that got me my first two commissions. It was the key that got me my first film job. You know what I mean? Like like it's crazy that an unproduced play got me a film job, right? right. And so I was like, that's what daddy's job is. Daddy's job was to open doors for me. And I was like, and I can't be obsessed with writing a play that will like go on a major stage and like make me a star. I was like, cause that's just not going to happen. I was like, I, I was like, I'm an indie musician who tried to play in the big leagues. Like, let me just write an indie song for me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to do was slave play. And I was just gonna, I wrote a play that I could put up at Abrams by myself. And then it ended up being a bigger song than I thought. Um, by bigger, you mean, uh, here's one headline. Uh, the queer black savior the theater world needs. I don't know who's writing these, but... No, that was hyperbolic. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, there's been a lot of articles labeled like that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested as your friend. When people are like, this is the next James Baldwin, which feels weird to me. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it feels odd. Um, what do you make of that stuff that's happening now? Like you were uh, truly a year ago, you were suffering at Yale, hating it, mm-hmm. working on your stuff to an audience that didn't quite understand it. Mm-hmm. And now a year has passed and people are anointing you as the next thing. Yeah. 
I mean, I think I just keep it in perspective by just reminding myself and all the people. Like, I try to, I think in almost every interview I've done, I've been like, hey, guys, like, so, like, I know it feels really nice to say that this is, like, the moment when, like, the moment that has never happened before where there's never been a black, queer, anything. But, like, it happens every time. I've seen it happen in my lifetime to two playwrights that I think are incredibly talented. And, like, while they've had great careers, like, you know, I don't know that they they ever took took it upon themselves that they were, like, going to change the entire world with, like, their writing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so I just have to remember that I am a part, like, that, that... But isn't some of that... Also about, I mean, I don't know who you're talking about. I have an idea, but I don't know those people. Mm -hmm. Isn't some of the writing about you or some some of that sort of dialogue around you very much entwined with how people perceive you as like a person in the world? Yeah. Because you have a very like big energy. Yeah. Like it's very clear when you're in a room to me at any time I've ever been in a room with you. Thank you. And it's not just because you're (laughs) 6'6". You have some sort of magnetic quality. Don't you think they're also including that in there? Oh, absolutely. And I'm not discounting that. But what I mean is that, like, you know, I recognize the fact that this is, like, a part of a system of capitalism that, like, wherein it becomes, like, easier to sell a thing or sell an idea when it's, like... They benefit from saying that about you. Yes, yes. And, like, and and I benefit from it. So it's, like, this whole complicated thing. But I think, for me, I constantly i have to like i can't do anything with that right like that doesn't make me write my next play you know what i mean like if anything if i focus on that too much i might never write another one you know <laughs> and something brandon jacob jenkins told me which i really loved which was like which was, was that like don't let like this all of these things like rob me of my room to grow and i think as that a the, person yeah as a person and as an artist right like i sh- i mean like i want to have as like diverse a like resume and diverse a catalog as like someone like Aronofsky where like maybe he's done like I forgot how the number but it's like but none of them look the same right uh-huh. like you know like you don't look at the fighter and necessarily think that that person's gonna make Black Swan right. you know what I mean right. and like I want to be able to have that type of, or even Paul Thomas Anderson it's like you know like there are through lines there's a voice but there's not one thing that makes you think like this is def like that's all they can do mm. and i think this year is a year where a lot of people have decided it's like well jeremy's just going to be that person who's writing about like black people and white people like intertangled and fucking and i'm like well no like i know that that's all i write about um that's just what i was interested in like last year and that like you know some plays came out of that but isn't that generally how a system isn't that generally how the system treats black people completely I mean, I think we're seeing it now with, with like, even Barry Jenkins. Yeah. And I worry, because I do think he's talented, Yeah, that he's going to be asked to keep making movies yeah. about black people. Maybe he wants to do that. I don't want to speak You know, him. I mean, his first movie was about a black couple. His second, I mean, he loves love stories. But I am interested in, like, what loving love stories and black love stories necessitate, like, what that um what that pressure will do like you know because like there isn't a market for it right so I mean, there, I mean there I mean there wasn't a market for it until Moonlight and then like Bill Street has continued that market being there and so it's like after he makes Underground Railroad like are people going to demand that he do that again or is he going to be able to just make you know get by making you know and also I think I'm wondering like you know does Barry always have to be beautiful like is that something you know Barry's nasty like he obviously has like a a vision you know but like. Will will the I think and I think I worry about that for myself too. I think that like it does become very difficult for black writers, black artists in general to like step outside of what people want for them. Mm. In the same way that it's like you know the thing I'm dealing with right now, which is like the sort of classic black artist thing, is like my work being black in the wrong way for certain black people, right? Is like, that what's happening? 
Yeah, on Twitter, people who haven't read my play are upset because, and it's like upset in the same way that people got upset about the Har- like certain writers in the Harlem Renaissance. People got upset that like you know, queer black writers were writing about queerness, that like female writers were writing about female sexuality, like all those things were things that like people thought would like stop the progress of um, of like black excellence in America. And I, I'm, I'm at the, like, heels of that right now, and it's, like, really stressful and not fun. Um, and I think that, like, there's the pressure within my own community, and then there's going to be the pressures within the white community for me to, like, be this thing. You know, like, what does it mean to be a James Baldwin to these people, right? Because I know that I – my plays will always be about race, but, like, I also think that they should look at how all their all the plays by white writers I see are also all about race. Mm. And I'm really excited to do something that, like, is raced in a space of nonsense, you know, where they can't make sense of my race just because they're watching it, right? I've been thinking a lot about how, like, white nonsense is, like, a genre of art that I enjoy a lot, like, a genre of, like, making that I enjoy a lot. White nonsense? White nonsense. What's this? So, like, uh, I mean, I think that, like... uh, Wes Anderson is a great example of white nonsense. Miranda July is like an amazing example of white nonsense. And I think that like um it's sort of like this sort of like apolitical work that like um functions on its like on you on you not being able to make sense of it. Mm. You know, Todd Salons is like that. And I think that there's like productive white nonsense and non productive white nonsense. And I think, like, something that's productive is, like, early Todd Salons. Like, it's like, you know, we had never seen storytelling move like that. And, like, storytelling moved in, in like, in married to a camera like that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that was productive because it taught us something. In the same way that, like... What's unproductive? I think that Wes Anderson is unproductive white nonsense. All the way through? Mm, sort of. But only because, like, the things he offered, the products he offered us, were things that he had, like, borrowed from so many, like brown people specifically that like if people were like actually like um engaged with his like uh or engaged with like world cinema like they would see that like the things he produced for our imaginaries or our framing Mm. um were borrowed to begin with you know what i mean Mm. um and not like not not like ingested and like digested you know they were they were sort of like cut copied you know you didn't think they were they were uh they weren't homages no I think it was like more simple, but then again, like I don't know Wes. I you know whatever, and I think that like you know Rushmore. I think is maybe like the closest he got to productive white nonsense. But then things that can be unproductive can still be enjoyable. Like it's not like a value judgment. It's just like a, it's just a different category. It's like categorically different, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you're concerned with your own work being productive. Yeah, but I also am concerned with my work being able to exist outside of sense. Yes. And I just wrote my manifesto for my time at Yale for Sarah Rule's class. And, like, my whole thing was about nonsense and, like, someone not being able to make sense of my otherness mm. through um, the meaning-making required in theater, right? Because no one's trying to make sense of whiteness when they watch a Wooster Group show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, what? whereas if I put a play up where it's just you and I talking into microphones – about what we're talking about right now, uh-huh. people will be making sense of it through a racial lens, mm. through a queer lens. And we only do that with other bodies. And I'm saying, like, that's, like, again, it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing that, like, I'm excited to complicate. And I think there is one place wherein, like, nonsense, specifically black nonsense, is, like, allowed and, like, flagrant and, like, populates the the, like, major artistic form, and that's, like, rap right now. Like, even the, like, if the, 
at the inception of rap, it was, like, nonsensical, you know, to, like, read poems over, like, scratched up <laughs> records. Like, that's nonsense, you know? And, like, you listen to, like, Little Uzi Vert, whose name is Black Nonsense, like, and you listen to what he, his, like, nonsensical, like, rhymes on, like, Paytech Water. You're like, oh, wow, like, this makes no sense, and yet everyone's listening to it and bopping their head, uh-huh. you know? And I want to get to a place where, like, that is, like, the norm in, like, film, television, and, like, rep- like representational medias, because it's, like, not yet. I have something that I've been wanting to ask, and I have to imagine it's frustrating, but I, I read a bunch of your interviews, and I've, I've, I've heard some of them, and, and we've talked about this, but uh, do you feel that the conversations about race, which I actually haven't brought up, Mm-hmm. here because i not that i'm not interested but it's all ways about race in some way yeah are you tired of having the same kind of conversations about your work or or, or even just you being a black man in america i think that i can never truly tire of it because i'm always very interested in like the mode by which the, the methods that people like try to attack it uh-huh but i have got but they bo- feel like attacks not attacks, no, 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 but just like, you know, they, I think they try, they're trying to like attack the idea, you know? But what I have gotten bored with are the like consistent, the consistent questions like, what do we think about this new black moment? And I'm like, what are you talking, like that is, that is the most frustrating thing to me that people What's like. new black moment? Well, people just are pretending like, you know, right now we're in this like new moment of blackness. We're like, it's like we got black, in your space, right? They're like, we have Black Panther, we have Bill Street, Bill uh-huh. Street. Black Panther, you know, like like this yeah. year it's just like those are the two that they're talking Bill about. Street, so like, Black Panther, right. yeah. But in like my world, it's like this season we have Fairview, Eve song, Is God Is, What to Send Up When It Goes Down, Slave Play, Daddy, uh, Jordan Cooper uh, with uh, uh, Ain't No Mo. We have uh, and like it's just like every season or T- Tori Sampson's like uh, uh, always pretty- new moments. Yes, but also I had to really big up Tori Sampson's If Pretty Hurts and Ugly Must Be a Motherfucker and A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson, which are both going up to play at Horizons this season. Um, but like they're all talking about these people being a part of these seasons as though it's like, isn't this crazy? I'm like, w- like when did you, what, what, can y'all ask all the white people how crazy it is when they're in a play? Or maybe ask white people like how crazy it is that they're not being programmed right now. Like <laughs> I'm actually more interested in you guys talking to them uh-huh. because like we need to work on our plays. You know what I mean? Like I think like that's a thing that I'm actually frustrated by um, when it comes to talking about race, but otherwise I'm fine with it. Hmm. I love talking about race. It's like how, I, it's my bread and butter. It's like how I make sense of the world um, because I'm from the South. And a lot of people who aren't from the South, I think, don't make sense of it as often as I do. Um, are you happy now? Basically. But I don't know. But I feel, I honestly feel like it's a job, right? Like, it's feel, I feel like I finally, like, got the promotion I was, like, waiting for. But, like, I already see the next three promotions I want to get. You know what I mean? And that's the hard part about I think actually I think that's the thing that makes all of this feel so normal right now is that like I definitely do feel like I'm treating it like I'm still working at Barney's. I'm like, great. Like it's like I've been trying to get on these commissions, like, you know, sell these sell these dresses, these like luxury things. Uh-huh. Um and a play is like a luxury thing. Like it I'm is. selling luxury things. So I sold two plays this season and that's gonna be really good for me. And now it's got time to like and now like, you know, maybe gonna get boopsed it up to manager. But, like, 
I want to be like, you know, I want to be able to like make enough money to buy my own company one day and like sell my own dresses, you mm-hmm. know, and like sell other people's dresses, you know. So I think like I'm happy in the sense that like I'm eating, that like I have a credit card that I can like swipe now and be like, I have food. Um, and that came more so from like working in film than working in theater. But I see, I can foresee a time when that can be like money I make from theater, not film. And that's really exciting. That makes me happy. Right. You know, I have no doubt it's going to happen for you. I hope so. Yeah. Well, look, we'll do part two when it does. Okay. Jeremy O'Harris. Bye. Special thanks this week to Jeremy O'Harris. I believe tickets for his newest production, Slave Play, is sold out. But be sure to check out his Twitter and Instagram where uh, he's been finding creative solutions for people who really, really want to go and uh, see his play. To find out more about Jeremy, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, you can also visit his personal website at jeremyoharris.me. To find out more about our show you can visit www.talkeasypod.com. Given that this is our final episode of 2018, I want to thank a few people that make it possible week in and week out. Um, Dylan Peck, our producer. Uh, Ian Chang, who does social media for us. Krishna Shenai, who has been doing the portraits for us uh, year after year. Ian Jones, who makes our graphics and logo. Uh, Elliot Weintraub, who has interned and associate produced for us on the show. Valerie Ettenhofer, who was previously our associate producer, but uh, has remained a friend to the podcast and is constantly helping and supporting the show. And then people who uh, do not work on the show, but have supported the program and me in making it. Uh, Harrison Cameron, Noel Wells, Janixa Bravo... Uh, Sean Baker, Meta Marie, Jack Anderson, Eric Lures, my sister Maya, David Cameron, Clea Benson, Steve Green, and my friend Minhal. Um, there are many more people who have supported me and this show during its run this year. And uh, I am thankful to all of them, and I am thankful to all of you who continue to listen. I know that uh, there are a lot of options out there in the world, a lot of different podcasts, a lot of podcasts that do interviews, but uh, I like to believe there's no show that quite does uh, the interview like ours. Maybe that's a little arrogant, but maybe there's some truth to that too. I believe we will come back for a sort of season three uh, in January, late January or February. I want to keep doing this thing uh, and I will keep doing it until it is no longer fun, uh, in which case I will stop. But I'm still having a good time. And uh, I want to also thank every single guest that uh, decided to give me an hour of their time in 2018. 
a lot of these folks who come on here have to do hundreds and hundreds of interviews, and um, it is an absolute honor and pleasure that they decided to do our show. So uh, I wish everyone a happy holiday break uh, and a happy new year. I know early January is a hard, hard time for a whole bunch of people, and um, I hope our show in some way can get you through that. So I'm Sam Fragoso, your host of this show, and uh, it's been my distinct honor to continue hosting it. And, uh, well, I'll see you next year. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.